0: Second Peter chapter 2 verse 1, but there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them, and bring on themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their destructive ways because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. By covetousness, they will exploit you with deceptive words. For a long time, their judgment has not been idle and their destruction does not slumber. Father, um, we need your presence here this morning. I need your presence. I need your anointing. And I pray, God, that you would just hover over us for these next few minutes, captivate our attention, help us to hear clearly what the Holy Spirit would have us to hear, to be changed, to be challenged, to be stirred up to be the men and women of God that you've called us to be, to awaken to the reality of a culture that even when we don't realize there's pushing back against the very thing that we believe is truth. I pray, God, that you would help me to communicate that truth today. I ask, God, for your anointing, though I don't deserve it and I haven't earned it. Certainly fall way short of either of those, but I need it. And I pray that by your grace you would anoint me so that I can communicate your word effectively, rightly dividing it, and challenging this congregation all of us as a church family to be more diligent than we've ever been speak through me today and may we be changed by your word i pray in jesus name amen when i um, when i started this series preparing for it in second peter i announced that i would do it last year um or i planned to do it and then i started preparing it probably in about december and as i started really working through some of the texts i thought oh my goodness this is going to be a challenge there's there's some stuff here that i've never preached before i've never heard people preach before not sure why people would want to preach it to be honest but um, i have come to believe differently and um, there is some really challenging I, i hope you've enjoyed the series so far But the rest of the way out these last two chapters, some really, really powerful truth. I think steadying the truth, truth that will steady us in the world in which we are in. Thus far in the series, we have been highlighting Peter's concern as he writes to the dispersed believers that have been dispersed all over the region, some in Galatia, some in Bithynia, some in Cappadocia, others in the Asia, all part of the Asia region. But Peter is concerned that they are going to succumb to false teachers. And there are many false teachers. He is concerned that they are going to drift away from the truth of God's word, especially in areas of morality and in a belief that Christ is going to return. Now, in last week's message, Peter turned his focus to what is the verifying authority, that which authenticates his teaching and the teaching of the apostles. He, along with James and John, had been eyewitnesses of Jesus being transfigured. He said, we're not telling you some story. This is not some made-up myth. authenticates what we are saying is we were eyewitnesses we saw him in his majesty and glory and they knew that he was going to come back in that same majesty and glory but peter said we're not making this story up this is not three generations removed we saw it we were eyewitnesses and so we learned last week that the gospel is anchored in history It is anchored in their eyewitness accounts and it's anchored in the truthfulness of the fact that jesus rose from the dead i even went so far as to give you some proofs historically not from christians but from historians why we are certain even most secular historians that jesus was raised from the dead it was the word or the truth or the doctrine of which believers could now be absolutely certain Jesus is coming back, and what Peter and Paul had been teaching was truth. So that authenticating um, message of Peter became the springboard upon which Peter based his teaching regarding the inspiration of Scripture, all Scripture is inspired of God, and it provides us the assurance today that When you hear this preach, this is not just a fable. It's not just a compilation of a few men that threw something together. This has the veracity of historical authenticity and also can be stood upon firmly and confidently. Both the Word of God and the work of the Holy Spirit are essential for our faith development, and to our spiritual steadfastness. You need the Word, and you need the Holy Spirit at work in your life. Say amen if you believe that. We cannot downplay either the Word or the work of the Holy Spirit. Both are crucial. Now, I wanna move to our text today very quickly. We now see for the first time in this text a really close-up look at what Peter and the believers were actually dealing with by way of false teachers. Peter was urgently responding to a danger that existed in the church. We're going to pop up on the screen what those dangers were. First of all, they were denying that Christ was going to come back. Secondly, they were denying that there would be judgment. Don't worry about how you live because when it's all said and done, there's no judgment. Thirdly, ethics and morality were becoming subjective. What works for you is fine. Whatever you like to do, whatever makes you feel good is fine. And then, of course, if you're not going to be judged, why align your ethics or morality with anyone else? And finally, disaster and destruction, Peter says, will be the result. Notice also the connection between chapter 1 and chapter 2 Peter claimed in chapter one, and we just ended there last week, that we have to embrace and hold fastly to the prophetic scriptures, that which the prophets spoke and the revelation and the interpretation that comes from God. But now he is going to warn that not all prophets, not all teachers come from God and that we must give earnest heed to the truth that we have learned. And this is absolutely essential to the church today as we battle a culture that doesn't know the Bible, a church world that does not know the Bible. How do we battle that? What is essential for our faith development? There's three important principles I wanna just share share with you from these three verses very quickly. Number one, the presence of false teachers within the church should not come as a surprise the fact that there were false teachers then or now should not surprise anyone here's what Peter said but there were false prophets also among the people even as there shall be false teachers among you The word also is kind of a connection as well between chapter one, he's already made this point, or I've already made the point. The topic of the prophets is the connection. We are in chapter one to believe the apostolic word of the prophets, but now, because God has spoken through them, then we are to give the more earnest heed to their words. But now Peter reminds us that there weren't just prophets that spoke the truth, but there are also false prophets in the church and false teachers as well. The false prophets of Israel's past, if you go to the Old Testament, were marked by three characteristics. Number one, they did not speak with divine authority. They said things, but it wasn't God speaking through them. Secondly, their message was good news. The prophets in the Old Testament always said things are going to be fine, everything's secure. And they denied the coming judgment. Don't worry about it. God's not going to judge you. And this is what the false prophets said in the Old Testament. And thirdly, they were ultimately shown to be worthy of condemnation. And we read a very strong example of that in Zechariah chapter 13. "'Shall be in that day,' saith the Lord of hosts, "'that I will cut off the names of the idols from the land, "'and they shall no longer be remembered. "'I will also cause the prophets and the unclean spirit "'to depart from the land.'" it shall come to pass that if anyone still prophesies that his father and mother who begot him will say to him, you shall not live because you have spoken lies in the name of the Lord. And his father and mother who begot him shall thrust him through when he prophesies. So false prophecy in the Old Testament was a big deal. And Peter is saying there were false prophets then just as there are false prophets now. FIRST KINGS CHAPTER FOUR REFERENCES A LYING SPIRIT IN THE MOUTH OF THE PROPHETS AND EVEN WHEN WE GET TO THE BOOK OF REVELATION THERE'S GOING TO BE ONE WHO'S GOING TO BE CALLED A FALSE PROPHET AND HE WILL DECEIVE MANY AND LEAD MANY ASTRAY IN THE FINAL DAYS SO NOW IN PETER'S DAY THERE ARE THOSE CLAIMING DIVINE AUTHORITY THAT ARE ACTUALLY INSIDE THE CHURCH AND YET AS PAUL AND PETER measure what they are saying through their apostolic eyes. Hebrews does the same. Jude does the same. These are recognized as those who are speaking lying words and false prophecies. Why did Peter talk in the future? There will be or shall be false teachers. It is most likely as most believe he is actually quoting the warnings of Jesus and early Christians. Jesus said in Matthew 24, 11, there will be many false prophets that will rise up and deceive many. And again, in Matthew 24, 24, Jesus said, there will be false Christ and false prophets. They will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. So, Peter is using these words to remind his readers that the presence of false teachers or false prophets should come as no surprise. Jesus spoke of a day that would accompany the end, but theologically, the end began on the day of Pentecost. These are the last days, and so like the church in Peter's day, look at me, we should not be surprised that there is false teaching and false prophets today. Point number one, it should come as no surprise to us that there is false teaching. How many are with me so far? Pretty easy so far. Secondly, the danger that false teachers pose to the body of Christ or the church should never be taken lightly. Number one, we should not be surprised that they're there. Number two, we should not take the danger that they pose to the church lightly. Here's what Peter says about them. These false teachers will secretly bring in destructive heresies. They will even deny the Lord who bought them or redeemed them. They will bring on themselves swift destruction. Many will follow their destructive ways because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. By covetousness, they will exploit you with deceptive words. For a long time, their judgment has not been idle, and their destruction does not slumber. There's a lot in those verses. Let me give you eight rapid-fire points really quickly about the destructive nature of false prophets. Number one, they are devious in their manner. They know that out-and-out confrontation with the apostles would have been worthless. And so they do what they do secretly. They were groups that would reject authority. They would elevate new revelation, God told me, over the Bible. And they would place individuals and false apostles and false prophets on a pedestal. Please look at me for just a moment. We have that in the church world today. They know that they don't want to get in a one-on-one confrontation, so deceptively and secretly they place people on pedestals and no person belongs there. They reject the authority of God's Word and the tradition of God's Word. And they claim to have now progressive and new ideas that supersede the word of God. They are, number one, devious. Number two, they perpetuate a serious error. Peter says, even denying the Lord who bought them. The word Lord is, some translations say the sovereign. The NIV does, and that's really a good word. The Greek word is the despotos, which is where we get despot or ruler or authoritarian. They were denying the authority, the rulership of Christ by new revelation, by progressive revelation, some even saying there's no need for the church, there's no need for devotion to Christ alone or exclusively. They are even denying the lordship, the authority, the sovereignty of Christ. Consequently, there is no moral standard if there is no authority. Thirdly, their outcome is destruction. The heresies bring destruction. They bring destructive final judgment. Number four, their destiny is swift destruction. The word swift does not necessarily mean soon, rather it means certain. It is not, Peter even says, it's not idle, it's not slumbering, it's not being held off forever. It is certain destruction. Look at me for just a moment. No matter how popular someone may be, no matter how eloquent they may be, if they are teaching contrary to the word of God, their destruction is ultimately certain and absolute. Number five, their popularity. Many will follow They're destructive or they're shameful in the NIV ways. Certainly a message today that resonates in our culture of shameful ways, moral laxity. Phrases like love is all that really matters. There will be no judgment. Selfish gain has become popular. It is shameful to pervert the word of God into that. Number six they do disastrous damage to the reputation of the church. Peter says, of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. They they do damage to the church's reputation. Listen to me. When Christians deviate from the truth, they hurt the cause of Christ. When Christians in leadership live immoral lives, they do great damage to the credibility of the people of God in the body of Christ. Number seven, Peter says they're motivated by greed, by covetousness. Later on, next week, they're actually going to be compared to Balaam, and I'll tell you that story. And number eight, the basis of their teaching is made-up stories. They exploit you with made-up and deceptive words false teachers. It was the false teachers and the false prophets, not Peter, that was devising a cunningly devised fable. False prophets, the basis of their teaching is made-up stories. The text indicates, please listen, that no one is immune from their persuasion, their deception, and the devastation that they bring. Many will follow their destructive ways. Now I want to pause for a moment. This is a challenging word. I try hard not to be too harsh or too critical of other theologies or philosophies or teachings that are out there. Justin Buzzard wrote in a blog post, he said, while I think it is important to be known more for what you are, what you are for than what you are against, Just a cursory reading of the Bible shows that it also calls us to deal with false teaching. Why? Because false teaching is dangerous, it is destructive, and it hurts people. He went on to say about 10 years ago, I heard Ben Patterson say something I will never forget. Ben told the story of a retired pastor who began noticing that his former congregation was sliding away from orthodoxy. The pastor saw this, as his fault. Noting the one thing he thought he did most poorly as a pastor. The pastor stated in two sentences his great failure as a pastor. I always told people what to believe. My great mistake is that I never clearly taught my people what not to believe. Look at me for just a moment. We must not take lightly that false teachers pose a great threat to the body of Christ. It's not just something that is okay and neutral, it is destructive and we must be people of the word. Somebody say amen if you believe that. Let me go to the last point, this is where I wanna land the subtle deception that false teachers propagate must not be overlooked. There's two phrases that speak to the subtlety of false teachers. Number one, they will secretly bring in destructive heresies. They do it secretly. And they will, in verse three, exploit you with deceptive words. So what kind of teaching did Paul have or Peter have in mind? We need to know. Surely not, please listen to me, you need to hear this, surely not every doctrinal disagreement was Peter's intention. Surely Peter didn't mean if you don't agree with me on everything, then you're a false teacher or you're a false apostle. I think most classically we learn in Scripture that things like eating meat offered to idols, which we can translate matters of conscience in 1 Corinthians 8 is something that we are not to dispute one another with. You may have convictions that I don't have. I may have convictions that you don't have. Those are not matters that should split us or cause us to see that as false doctrine. As a matter, Paul said that some people observe one day over another. Don't let that be a separating doctrine. In both cases, Paul tells disagreeing parties to live with one another in harmony. So balance is the key. We must not lump everything into one category. We should not be splitting and calling people false prophets over what Bible translation they choose to use. We should not call people false prophets or false apostles or see them dangerous if they have a different view of in-time events or how we ought to baptize someone or what the evidence of being baptized in the Holy Spirit is. And I would suggest even issues of salvation, predestination, and eternal security are not matters of false teaching. We need to be careful that we don't pick fights over things that are not to be divisive in the body of Christ. Somebody say amen if you believe that. But Douglas Moose says this, on the other hand, it is fatal to allow complete tolerance on every issue that comes along. Christianity would be evaporated of its essence and consist of little more than a vague reverence for God. So while we don't fight on every issue, there are some issues that are worth standing for. How many believe that to be true? It is crucial to know what the Bible deems as essential. Can I give you real quickly about 10 or 11 things that the Bible deems as absolutely essential? Maybe nine, number one, the inspiration of scripture. Look at me for just a moment. I'm going to give you a real quick theology course. Everybody up for it. Everybody wake up. Elbow your neighbor. All right. Number one, this Bible is inspired. It is breathed out by God. Therefore, it is true. Say amen if you believe that. Secondly, the absolute exclusivity of Christ as the only way to to the Father. I am the way, the truth, the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. If it's not true, then this is not inspired. We might as well shut down and go home because we have no message to preach. Number three, salvation comes by faith through grace our works add nothing to the work of calvary it's not the cross plus me it's the cross and my faith in what jesus did how many are undone by the mercy of god aren't you thankful for that number four The pursuit of holiness after one is saved. Not a legalistic attempt to meet human standards, but a passionate desire to know Jesus and please him more as we know him better. Number five, the nature of God as Trinity, as holy, as completely other. He is righteous, he is eternal, he is sovereign, all-powerful, all-wise, and our God does not change. Say amen if you believe that. Number six, the dual nature of Jesus. That is, he was both human and, by the way, is still 100% human and 100% Divine, the word became flesh, that's the incarnation, and he dwelt among us, was tried as all points, like as we, yet he remained sinless. Number seven, we believe that he ascended to heaven after his bodily resurrection, and he now lives to intercede for us every single day how many are thankful for that we also believe he is going to come back we may differ on when you may not agree with me i may not agree with you I may not agree with me on some days, you understand, but he is coming back and he is going to judge us and those who have placed their faith in him will have eternal life in his presence and those who have rejected him will have eternal damnation separate from God in a place called hell. And number nine, we must believe in the virgin birth and the bodily resurrection of Jesus. How many believe that and can sign on to that? In other matters, listen, in other matters, we may find disagreements. And in those matters, we must agree to let the word stand over us in those situations. I may not agree with you on other issues. You may not agree with me. But the word of God is right. One of us is wrong. And we're going to let the word of God stand over us and we're gonna submit to it. Tradition and the witness of hundreds of years of orthodox interpretation must never be considered unconvincing on these matters. Can I just tell you real quick, and I need to hurry, but my dad, one of the pieces of advice my dad gave me when I was preaching, he said, Kevin, when you prepare a sermon, get the Bible out, leave the commentaries alone, start studying, outline your sermon, figure out what you believe God is trying to say in that text then get the commentaries out and find out what the commentaries say and he said to me Kevin if you cannot find a single commentator that says what you said you are probably wrong and you need to go back and figure out what it means it was great advice if I come up with something in 2024 that no one else has ever come up with guess who's wrong? It's me, right? We don't need to reject all tradition. There are folks who have studied this inspired word and know the Greek and Hebrew languages. We need to trust that and and study it out so that we can rightly divide the word of truth. Can I just tell you, I am so glad for my dad. He gave me some really good advice and you ought to be glad for him too because you don't get any hokey sermons because of that, all right? So, False teaching, I need to end, but I'm not done. How do you end when you're not done? (laughs) So why is false teaching a bigger danger today than ever? I think I can answer this pretty quickly. First of all, we live in an era that is hostile to and suspicious of absolute truth see, we used to agree what religion, philosophy, or ethical systems were correct. Um, we used to argue about what is the correct interpretation of Dickens or um, Shakespeare? What's the correct interpretation? Today, there's no such thing as a correct interpretation. Today in literature courses, what does that mean to you? How how do you feel about that? In your context, what does Shakespeare say to you? I'm not too worried about Shakespeare getting offended, but when that gets pushed onto the Bible, we're suspicious of truth, and so now we're sitting in rooms saying, what does that say to you? What do you think that means? What does that mean to you? And again, I've said this before, and I don't mean to be offensive. But I don't give a flying leap what it means to you. I want to know what God meant. And what God meant is what it must be to me. But we live in an era now that's hostile to anybody saying, well, this is truth. Well, your truth is yours. That's fine. You want to believe that? Go right ahead. Society number two has embraced pluralism and tolerance, and those have become our new goals. This is called postmodernism. You see, modernity focused on what is right, postmodernity focuses on what works. And I don't mean this to be a political statement, but it's true. Everything is tolerated except intolerance. If you say Jesus is the only way, you're intolerant, and you are therefore not tolerated because you believe that Jesus is the only way. And I don't care who's annoyed by me, Jesus is the only way. And quite honestly, there's nobody that stands behind a pulpit that has any business saying anything else. And if they're saying something else, they ought to find a new job because you're just leading people into eternity without Jesus if you stand behind a pulpit and say there's other ways to heaven. Number three, the discomfort for Christians with this truthless culture has led many to witness based on the utility of Christianity rather than its truthfulness. We now try to witness to people and we say things like, well, it worked for me, it helped my family come to church It helped my family and we we got along better and and the kids were happier and they enjoyed the classes and 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 i met some friends and i was in a great small group and that's what our witness has now been whittled down to because we're afraid of the truth issue or the hyperfaith movement try this and you'll get rich or you'll get healthy or you'll get wealthy And now we uh, Christians witness on the practicality of Christianity, made my marriage stronger. But this paradigm shift, let me tell you, is destructive. Because Jesus, as the only way to eternal life, is not a checkbox option of Christianity. It is the message. To be very honest, if coming to church made your marriage worse, it wouldn't change the fact that Jesus is the only way to eternal life. If your kids fought you all the way here, I'm sorry, but Jesus is still the only way to eternal life. Feeling has replaced thinking. Doctrine has become less important, which has opened up a golden opportunity for false teachers with a biblically illiterate church and a weak pulpit and us witnessing based on utility and practicality rather than truth. And false teachers are sneaky and deceptive and with no authority, they mix truth with error just like Satan did. This is not an unimportant matter. Peter said that false teaching was destructive and can I tell you, our culture is being deceived today. Peter focuses on issues of moral laxity and the denial of Christ's coming and judgment. But the warning is not confined to these alone because any denial, look at me, any denial of clearly revealed biblical truth falls under the concern of Peter. I'm not just picking them out, I'm giving you a couple of examples. I don't care how warm and cozy the Christian world has become with the Mormons, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints rejects the deity of Christ. I don't care how warm and cozy and how great their worship music is, but the oneness doctrine denies the Trinity, and the Bible reveals God is Father, Son and Holy Spirit. The broad principle we must embrace and uphold is what Douglas moore states so powerfully, listen to me, what we believe matters, and it matters eternally. What you believe matters, and it matters eternally. And let me whip out C.S. Lewis. One sentence, Christianity of false is of no importance. If it's true, it is of infinite importance. The one thing it cannot be is moderately important. Stand with me, if you would. Father, thank you for your word today. Help us to be men and women of God. as Paul said hold up the truth the word of life hold it forth in a dark generation Lord this is not some unimportant message this may be the most important message We are sanctified by truth and your word is truth. We are saved by truth and you are truth. It is of eternal importance what we believe. Help us to take a stand, not in the middle, not a stand of cultural relevance and tolerance, but a stand on truth. It doesn't matter what the talking heads say. It doesn't matter what the PhDs say. Heaven and earth will pass away, but your word will not ever pass away to stand on and in truth today your heads bowed for just a moment if you're here today and maybe you don't know jesus maybe you've been i think that's it it could be important to some people or maybe I'll, i'll give it a second look at some time in my life i don't know how to make it any clearer christianity is either of no importance it is of eternal importance, one or the the other. If you don't know Jesus today, I'm going to ask you to make a decision. Are you going to say it's important or it's not important? Just a real simple question. If you're here today and you've never made Jesus Christ the Lord of your life, then I'm just going to throw it on the table for you. Is it important or not? if it's important, I invite you to slip up a hand and say, I want to make Jesus the Lord of my life. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus, you're not serving him, but you believe it's of eternal significance that you make Jesus the Lord of your life, I invite you to just slip up a hand right where you're at. Anyone in this room that would say, I, I want to make Jesus the Lord of my life. Anyone in this place, let me just give you a quick opportunity. Anyone in this room? Let me ask a second question then. How many today would say, Pastor, I I want God's help. I'm 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 gonna make a commitment to being a man or woman of the word. But I don't wanna get swept into this cultural mess that refuses to see truth. I wanna make I want to make significant impact with my friends and my family. I want to witness not about just how Christianity makes me feel, but that Christianity is truth. I need God's help, but I want to commit to that. And with God's help, I'm going to stand on his word and I'm going to be a better witness. I'm going to be a a greater proponent of truth. And I'm going to learn to know the truth even greater. How many would slip up your hand with me and say, that is my desire? We just worship the Lord this morning. This is a great chorus of just kind of affirming. There's no one beside him, no one else worthy. It's not Jesus and other options. It's he alone. And as we worship him, as always, the altar is open. If you'd like to come and just seal that deal in your heart this morning, you certainly can come and kneel or stand. But let's spend these next few moments worshiping him. And again, if you'd like to come, please step out and feel free. Free to do that. Let's work.